Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guest. I gotta tell you something, people. I'm back east, and this is my first recording from the Cooper Talk Studios now in Marlton, New Jersey. And it's very weird because when we moved back, we always in Burbank we had a laundry room. So we always had Joanne always had quarters, took quarters. I never had quarters in my change. Drawer. She would always be like, hey, you know, I need a quarter here. And now it's unbelievable. I go, I get something. I come home with a quarter. And because she has her own washer and dryer in the place, I have tons of quarters. It's pretty amazing. I'm not used to the quarters. So now when I go into Philly, I can sit there and I can put them in a meter instead of using my card. And it's all wonderful. Anyway, we have a great show today. And I got to tell you, my guest, she's a, she's a comic, a writer, a producer, and she's a Mets fan. And I'm going to say this, as a Phillies fan, I'm usually anti-Mets. But a few years ago, when the Mets played the Royals in the World Series, I rooted for the Mets. Because I was like, I need I need the NL to win. You know, it's bullcrap NL East. It's not like a root for the Braves. You know, the Braves just suck ass. But I'm sitting there, I got so much crap from people when they're going to give up your Philly card. I'm like, it's the Mets. It's not like liking the Cowboys. Anyway, my guest is Sue Kalinske. How you doing, Sue? I'm doing very well, Steve, and, um, you know, it's funny that you say that you were rooting for the Mets, because one time when I, the only time that I went to a Philly game in Philadelphia, there were more Mets fans in the stands than Philly fans. Well, you know what happens, it's like, it's so funny, it's like when the Phillies suck, you can get tickets. Like a few years ago, and I come back before I moved back, I just moved back, but I used to come back to see my girlfriend before she moved to LA. And I would go like the day before, I would tell my friends, okay, you guys buy the beers, you drive, you pay for parking, I'll get the tickets. I would go the day before, and this is when the Phillies would stink. You'd go to StubHub and you'd get tickets for like 10 bucks, a great seat. So it's just, it's weird. Philly fans... You know, they just think they get apathetic. And Mets fans, you know, I mean, you live in L.A. If you ever go to a Mets fan, I mean, a Mets game, Mets-Dodgers game, the place is packed with Mets fans. Right, right, yeah, all the transplants. But it's, you know, it's funny how, um, and, and, and just speaking about going to the game in Philadelphia, it was the only time that I was rooting for the uh, visiting team. And I go up to the concession, and I hear everybody cheering, and... It ended up being a mess that actually got a hit. It was the weirdest thing in the world. Because usually when I'm at, you know, when I'm at my state home stadium, if you go up to the concession and you hear cheers, it's because the home team actually did something right. So it was, uh, it was, it was kind of jarring, but it was fun. Now, now, when did you start your love for baseball? Because I know you, I believe, I know you write some articles, and I think you have a blog or you have a podcast about baseball. Were you always a big baseball fan? And I mean, how did this whole love affair with the Mets start? Well, when I was growing up, I'm the youngest of five, and my oldest brother is 11 years older than me. So he was, you know, he grew up. You know, we grew up, and he grew up in Brooklyn. I mean, I moved when we were three years old. Sorry for him getting a call. Um, anyway, so um, he was a huge Willie Mays fan because he was a New York Giants fan. So um, so I became a Willie Mays fan. And it's funny, I wasn't really a San Francisco Giant fan. I just loved Willie Mays because my brother loved Willie Mays. And then my uncle had box seats to Shea. And I used to go to games all the time as a kid. And... And then, you know, like when I got into like junior high school and high school, I really didn't follow it too much. And then when I got older and I was, you know, became a comic and I was living in the city, I used to go to games all the time. And then from, from that point on, I was, you know, I was, you know, completely hooked. So I write actually for a, a Mesmerized Online. I'm a contributing writer to their site and I have a blog as well. Okay, now, now your comedy, now that you started off doing comedy, as a kid... Were you funny? Did you want to pursue it? I mean, how did it all start to happen? And and to be honest, you know, I talked to a lot of comics because I did comedy in Philly. And actually, I performed the other night for the first time in like six months. But back, uh, there wasn't a lot of female comics either uh, when you, you know, when you were hitting this New York scene. What made you get into comedy? And did you always find yourself funny or did you want to go follow the arts? What made you take this route? Um... I, you know, I watched comedy at a very, very young age. You know, you know, Ed Sullivan show. Alan King was probably the first comic that I saw as a kid that I had such a connection with because, you know, growing up Jewish in New York, and that's all he talked about. And and so I, you know, I watched The Tonight Show, 
And um, I did impressions at a very, very young age. My parents bought the first family album of Vaughn Meter. Do you remember him? Who? His name was Vaughn Meter. No, no. Was he, a, was he an impressionist? Vaughn Meter uh, looked and sounded just like John Kennedy. And Buck Henry and a bunch of other, you know, famous writers um, wrote this album of John Kennedy, newly in the White House, um, and just all these really, really funny sketches of like giving, like Jackie giving a tour, and you know John having lunch with all these, you know, diplomats, and it was really hysterical. So I learned how to. Uh, John Kennedy was my first impression. And then I did like John Wayne and Humphrey Bogart, and my mother's friend was was a comic, and he was a Borschfeld comic. So he never he never got the uh, the fame of like a you know Pat Cooper and and guys like that. But he hung out in those circles, and he made you know a, a pretty decent living. And um, so anyway, so I I knew of, of like he was my mother's friend. He was a comic. It was like oh my god, what an amazing job to have. And so, you know, I did impressions, and then when I was around 17, um, a friend of my mom's uh, was a wardrobe mistress in the film industry, and she got wind of some theater that was doing this, like, potpourri of entertainment, and she said, you should go down there and, um, and, and see if you can, you know, get involved in it. So I, you know, I wrote a, a sketch doing all my impressions. And it went over great. And then someone said to me, hey, you know, you should go to the improv in, in Manhattan. And I was like, oh, I, I didn't even know about the improv. And I waited online like, you know, every other, you know, comic. You know, you wait online for, you know, all day. You get there early in the morning. You get a number. And, um, and I got on. And it went over really, really well. And, um, and then I thought, well, I'm in. So like, you know, like, you know, they, they said, you know, you did great. You know, you should come back. Coming back to me thought, oh, I'll just come back like during the week and I'll right. get on. <laughs> I come back and they're like, and I was like, you know, oh, can I get on? And they looked at me like I was an idiot. Like, uh, and no, like who are, like they didn't even remember me. And, um, and then, you know, I had to go pick a number again and then, you know, the whole cycle. Anyway, so, you know, and I, and I just kept on going back and going back and then I, you know, became a regular and I, I actually was an impressionist as a comic for, I don't know, maybe four years or so. And I started to get kind of bored with not really, not really having a personality on stage. And the people that I really admired, I wanted to be more like that. I wanted to talk about, you know, who I was and have a point of view and... So I stopped doing the impressions, and that was a little scary because it was a, a crutch. That's well, how I, you know, was able to get on stage. Yeah, the crutch is always, you know, that is like an impression or a prop. And when you give it up, it's different. Who were some of your go-to impressions? Like when you were when you were starting out, when you were getting on stage, did you do like the generic impressions, or did you do different impressions? Um, I did a lot of the generic. Like I did. Uh, well, I, I actually did. Um, so I did Humphrey Bogart. I did. I did actually did Carson. I did um, George Burns, um, I did Richard Nixon, um, I did Lyndon Johnson. You know, I was a big fan of, of, of David Fry. So um, watching other impressionists was a great way for me to figure out how they did it. So I, I studied them. And, um, and I didn't, I didn't and my shtick basically was because I had a very deep voice. So my shtick was that I was doing the wives of their husbands, but they sounded just like their husbands. Oh. <laughs> okay. That was my, now, now my who, gimmick. Now, who were some of the people that when you were working out, when you were starting, who were some of your, let's say your contemporaries, and who were some of the people that were in the class before you? Because comedy really hadn't blown up yet, had it? Um. Not, you know, it was, it was like late 70s, early 80s, so, you know, it was kind of starting to, but when I first went on stage, like the first time I went on stage was probably 1978 or 9, so like Richard Belzer was a big deal, you know, he was like the main guy at Catch a Rising Star, um, 
uh, Bill Maher, you know, it was early stages of Bill Maher, um, Jimmy Brogan, um, Leno, of course, um, oh, God, who else, Adrian, um, uh, and, you know, a ton of people that you, that you probably don't know, like there was a woman named Abby Stein, and Scott Blakeman. I remember Abby Stein. I remember oh, you know, you know Abby? Okay. I don't know her okay, personally. Scott, I remember her picture so of the comedy was the works. First, first comic friend that, that I made, and a whole group of us. And, like, Dennis Miller was a late-night comic. So all the late-night comics, you know, you know, had their little club. You know, we were not the featured people. You know, we didn't always get on, and if we did get on, we got on very, very late at night, you know, usually to, like, five people. But, you know, that was, that was the way you did it, you know. It was, you know, you, you, you had to prove how badly you wanted it. So you, I was at a club every night. And, um, like, you know, like there were times I'd go on at 3 o'clock in the morning. And sometimes, you know, sometimes there would be 20 people. Sometimes there would be three people. But it didn't matter. You know, you just wanted to get stage time. Now, when did you start? making strides and moving up the ladder how long did it take you to become a regular in the clubs because i know like i talked to steve scrovan and he had said how like you know back then you could do once you were a regular in these clubs you could do like seven sets a night when did you start breaking into that rotation where you became a regular um probably uh it was 1984 maybe I, I actually came out to L.A. Uh, in 1980, and my impetus for coming out was I had a really horrible breakup with this guy, and a friend of mine lived out in, or somewhere in, like, Newport Beach. So I came out, and I stayed here for, I ended up staying for, like, three, three years or something like that, and I went on at the comedy store, and I passed, and... That's when the belly room was just for women. It was that upstairs tiny room. So I became a regular at the comedy store, and that happened pretty quickly. And I go to the improv, you know, every now and then, maybe get a spot, but mostly, mostly the comedy store was was my room. And um, and then I had a kind of a a weird thing with with Missy Shore, who owned the club. She had been dating this guy, Argus Hamilton, who was much young, younger than her, and he took a liking to me just for my comedy. I mean, he was, you know, he had a wandering eye, but he never, ever came on to me. He just was very complimentary um, for my stand-up. And I guess he said something to Mitzi once, like, you should, you know, really pay attention to Sue Kalinske because she's, she's really funny. You should, you know, you should give her more spots or whatever he said to her. And... Um, she took that as he was having an affair with me and um, <laughs> wouldn't let me perform in the club anymore. Oh, man. That's like, you know, that's the kind of stuff that pisses you off. It's like you do nothing wrong, you know, and it's, it's just, you know, it's also the insecurity of the business. But it's like you're just out there. You're getting on stage. This guy's being helpful. He's not trying to pick up on you. And then the owner gets pissed off. <laughs> I know. And I was probably the only woman he wasn't sleeping with. You know? Um, <laughs> Yeah, it was really, and, and I'll tell you, it was such a horrible thing because one night, I, and, and, and I had put all of my comedy eggs in one basket, really. There weren't a lot of clubs out here then, um, so it was really the improv and the comedy store. So, you, you know, and then there was like the battle between if you worked the comedy store, you couldn't work the improv and vice versa, and it was really put the comedians in such a horrible position. All we wanted to do was go on stage. You know, you owners, you know, you figure it out yourselves, but why are you, you know, doing that to, to comics? So anyway, I was at the comedy. I still kind of hung out there because that's where all my friends were. And I was up in the belly room one night and um, a comic didn't show up or was late. And the MC who I was friendly with said, can you go on? And I said, I'm not allowed to go on here. And she said, look, I need you to go on. And because Missy never, ever came up to the belly room. So she said, if she doesn't, you know, she, she never comes up here, don't worry. And if she does, I'll defend you. I'll tell her that you, you know, basically helped us out. So I said, okay, so I'm on stage, and I'm probably up there for around five or so minutes. And all of a sudden, I hear from the back of the room, get her off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, it was so humiliating. 
And my girlfriend, and the, and the woman never, ever defended me, which pissed me off. But anyway, it was just, you know. So, oh, the mail, the mail just came at my house. See that? Yeah, yeah that's good. Like, you know, it's funny. The, well, at least you know when the mail comes. Like in L.A., when I was in L.A., <laughs> my, our, our mailman would come at like four. Well, we had a male woman. I guess you call it. And this lady was the best. But when she had a substitute, it would suck. Because these guys, they wouldn't bring the flyers. And I'm one of those people that I love reading the Sprouts and the Ralphs flyers. Because shopping to me is a big thing. I'm like, I just, I love doing it. My girlfriend cracks up. She's like. You, I'll plan a menu. And when we would get this, the substitute mailman, he wouldn't bring the flyer. Or after a holiday, they don't do the flyer. And I'd always be depressed. I'd be like, ah, oh, crap. I can't see what's on sale. I mean, it, I'm just crazy like that when the mail comes. So so you're in L.A. and you can't mm-hmm. get onto the comedy store. So then you decide to go back to New York? Well, no. So what happened was I, I started going to the improv, you know, a little bit more. And then, you know, the, the comedy store had another room in Westwood for a long time. And um, and that was a club where Missy never, ever went to. So I used to go there and hang out. Um, and, you know, I had a, 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 I was dating a, a comic at the time. And he used to perform there all the time. So I used to go and hang out with him. And Sam Kennison um, pretty much ran the room. And he said, you want to go on? And I, you know, I went through the same thing. I said, I can't, I can't go on here. He said, look, he says, I know for a fact, she never comes here. I'm here every night. She never comes here. So I used to co- go on there on the slide. Um, cause Sam was really, really just wonderful to me. And then what happened? I, you know, actually during this time, I, I wasn't doing stand up, um, full time. I still had a job. I was a legal secretary. And, um, the guy that I worked for, was the coolest guy in the world, and we're actually still friends today. And he was very supportive of my career. Um, you know, he was just, a, you know, we'd you know, smoke pot together. I mean, the guy was just like the coolest. So um, I got my first gig was Laughs Unlimited in Sacramento. And I was, you know, opening act. And after, but I, I couldn't, I wasn't getting enough gigs that I can actually quit. And then finally, I got... A, uh, I got an agent, um, a booking agent, who booked me on like a three-month tour, and um, and then I, you know, I quit my job. And when the tour was done, I I I landed back in New York, and I just figured I would probably be able to get more stage time in New York than I could in Los Angeles. So I, I guess it was nineteen. It was around nineteen eighty-four. I guess. I moved back to New York, and that's when I became uh, a regular at the Improv, and I, you know, other clubs had opened up at the time. There was a club called Who's On First that Adrian Tolsch and uh, this guy Tommy Koenig ran, so I used to go on there, and then I'd go, and then the comic strip was open at the time, so I became a regular at the comic strip, and, you know, I didn't go on, like, all the time at Catch, but I went on, you know, I, I went on, you know, semi-regularly at Catch. And, um, and then, you know, from there, you know, I started doing colleges and, you know, you know, go to these like college conventions and then, you know, you have a great show and then all the colleges want you. So I did that. And, um, I did a lot of USO stuff too, a little bit later on in my career where I just went, you know, I did, I did USO stuff in the States and then I traveled all over the world doing that. And that was the most fun. Um, you know, went everywhere, you know, went to, you know, the Middle East and, you know, went to all through Europe and Japan and um, Yugoslavia and it was just phenomenal. And then, you know, you know, I did, you know, a bunch of, you know, TV shots. Yeah, I, the, the TV, I, the I, TV I shots to... were, that was like back, that was back when like, there were so many damn TV shows on. I mean, if you were working New York comic, you knew you were going to get comedy on the road, even at the improv, uh, what Rosie hosted a stand-up spotlight. Um, there was right. like a ton of them. Did you ever do Comedy Tonight? Was that the one with the, it was one like... Uh... I did, Bill Buck. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, I got. A, I have a great, a great Bill Buck story. Well, it's not really about Bill Boggs, but he was there. I got on Star Search, and um, I did the first show of the season. And I was up against a Bill Boggs client, this guy John Mulrooney. And John, you know, John was a really funny guy. He's a blue-collar guy, um, you know, real meat and potatoes kind of comic. And um, so we get, you know, so I, I'm living in New York, and I fly out to L.A., and 
were staying at uh, the hotel that was right next. I guess it was. I don't know if it was. I don't think it's a Holiday Inn, but it was a hotel right next door to the Comedy Store. And uh, we, you know, we have a, a rehearsal. So all the dancers and singers and everybody's there, and John doesn't show up. So, you know, I go through, they want to know what your act is, you know. So I, you know, go through and I do my act or whatever. And then the night of the show, it turns out that John, I had a bit about um, working out. And so did he. But I went on first. So I'm in the green room, and I just show up by myself. And he's got this posse, you know, he's got he's got his managers, he's got friends. And they're like, and, and like, I knew John, you know, we basically started around the same time. And he, they're like staring me down, trying to psych me out. And John shows up wearing this crazy, like, Star Trekian uh, suit with like, like pointy, you know, shoulders and um, like it, it, the suit is like a short jacket that forms a V and it's like crazy. I mean, he's a guy that used to go on stage with like a t-shirt and jeans. But I guess he thought for TV, you know, I really need to kind of up my, you know, my wardrobe. Anyway, he looked very uncomfortable and it was so bizarre. So I go on first and I get like three and three quarter stars out of four. And, and I beat him the first show. And apparently I had heard that the Star Search staff, they thought he was going to win the entire thing. <laughs> and I beat him the first show. And it was just beautiful. Now, I it was like the greatest feeling. Now, how could you, like, doing that show, it's like, didn't you do like a minute and a half or two minutes? How would you choose? I it mean, two minutes. Two minutes. Now, now who, did you, who did you get in the second round? Do you remember? Yes, uh, Eddie Brill. And did you beat Eddie Brill? I beat Eddie Brill. And then I, the third show, and it was funny because I was dating, I don't know if you remember Ken Ober? Did you yeah, remember yeah, Ken yeah, Ober? sure. Okay, well, Ken, Kenny Ober was my boyfriend for on and off for the better part of 16 years. And um, he had done Star Search a couple of years before me, and he got into the semifinals. So my deal with him was if, uh, if I if I won, I was going to buy him a Porsche. That was the deal that I made with him. So every time I won, I would call him up and say, "All right, we got a fender. You know, we we have a tire or whatever." <laughs> so the third time, I was up against this guy Tim Rose, who wasn't that strong of a comic, but he was really cute, and um, and we tied. And when you tie. That's when the judges decide who to go to the judge. Yeah, went to the judges, and they picked him. Oh. And I was devastated. But because I had very high scores when I won, and nobody really went on like a wild run that season, I got into the semifinals, and then I lost. <laughs> Who'd you go against in the semifinals? Um, a guy named Mark McCullum. Who I remember him, a, the, the uh, guitar guy. He did like. Like a guitar dunk. guy, yes. Oh man, doing like cartoon impressions. Right. <laughs> See, that's the and, worst and, when, when you're a comic and like you know you're sitting there and, and you're and first of all because you used to do impressions, then you said screw this, I'm not having fun. So you go and do an act and you cultivate an act, and then you get beat by a guy. I remember, I still remember he had he had spiky hair and he did like a Daffy yep. Duck singing songs, and I'm like, <laughs> you're like you're like what the hell is that shit? I mean, hey, nothing against that, but I'm like. That's not stand-up. Right, and it was like a prop, and it wasn't just, yeah, it wasn't pure stand-up. And, and this was another thing that was the injustice of the show, is that my the, the, the night that I tied with this guy, Tim, if you knew, if any of the judges knew you, because like when they got chosen to be on the panel, they didn't know who the comics were going to be. So, but if... They did know, like, when, I guess, I don't know, I guess they had backup. I don't know, it was like a jury. They had backup. But one of the guys on the panel, he wasn't my agent, but I was very good friends with him. He was an agent at APA. And um, he had to um, recuse himself from the panel because he knew me. Then when Mark won, one of the agents from his agency was on the panel. And the semifinals... It was all, it had nothing to do with the audience. It was all judges picking who won. And I, I, I found out. 
And I didn't, you know, I didn't cause a stink because I didn't think that I was going to win. But I thought, you know, that was really unfair that yeah. he knew one of the judges. I think we, we should because sit there and do a sit-down with you and Mark McCollum, and you got to tell him to his face, we'll get you on Maury Povich. You have to say, hey, man, you ripped me off. I should have beat your ass in Star Search. Well, well, the thing is, too, is that, you know, you won money. You know, every time you won, you won money. So I wouldn't have tied. If my friend didn't recuse himself, he would have voted for me, and I would have beat that guy, Tim. And then who knows, you know, I could have gone on a, on a roll. So it kind of prevented me from making more money than I did and then winning more shows. So anyway, so you get, I'm not bitter. Yeah, it's, you shouldn't have been. You, who won that year? <laughs> who won that year? I'm trying to think. I'm wondering if it was Mark McCollum who won. I think he may have, which is funny because... I, um, I was talking to uh, Steve McGrew, and he said his claim to fame is he beat Louis C.K. in the first round. Oh he, said, my he said Louis was like 18. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Well, you know, Dennis Miller lost uh, his first shot, too. A lot of really, really funny people never went on. You know, they lost the first time they were on. So, so you're doing stand-up, you're going on the road, you're back in, you go back to New York and you're working a lot, and now, mm-hmm. when do you decide to leave New York, or are you staying to stay? I mean, what, what do you see, you're doing stand-up, you're doing well, you're making a living, you're touring, you're doing, singing the world, mm-hmm. when do you mm-hmm. sit there and sit there and go, you know what, I want to do something different, or, or what happened that you really pulled away from stand-up, because I know you went to producing and writing, but what happened, did you mm-hmm. move to LA for a certain reason, or did you come out for pilot season, or what happened? I, you know, when, when the, before Comedy Central was Comedy Central, when it was just the Comedy Channel, remember it was Comedy Channel and then it was Ha, right. and they combined and made Comedy Central. I had a, a gig on the Comedy Channel called Short Attention Span Theater, I that. which was kind of like talk, talk soup. So it was, it was a, it was a revolving cast of four of us. And, um, and then this new executive came in and she wanted to change up the short attention span theater show. And um, she wanted new people to come in and audition for my, you know, from, from, from my spot, for everybody else's spot. And, um, and, I, and then my, my manager says, okay, you have to audition. I said, I have to audition to keep my job. <laughs> this is really uh, unnerving. And, uh, and, and John, I, I lost it. John Stewart and this woman, Patty Rossborough, they ended up making it a, uh, 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 a man and a woman, you know, instead of just a solo person doing the, you know, the show. Anyway, so that was really devastating to me because I thought, you know, and, and, and at the time, Comedy Central really wasn't on um, any major network, but when they revamped it, people were able to see it. So it was like, oh, God, I can't, you know, it's just my luck with my career. You know, now that, that it's on, you know, for everybody, uh, no one, you know, everybody sees it without me, and I was just like really disenchanted. My, but my boyfriend, well, Kenny at the time, um, he moved to LA. He got a he got a gig doing something, and I guess like a year later, I ended up moving out to uh, to be with him. And you know, I figured, you know, let me take a shot at LA again. So I came out and, um, you know, was on the road a lot, and that was kind of the that was probably the majority of me doing a lot of colleges and um, and uh, and USO tours, and you know I was auditioning for things here and there. I auditioned for you know commercials and a um, couple of you know sitcoms and got close with a few things and and just all the time on the road was really taking a toll. And I just decided that I just didn't want to live that life anymore. So I hooked up with a a girlfriend of mine who I knew from New York and she was a writer and we teamed up and we wrote a bunch of spec scripts and we got an agent like right away and um, we got a job on Brotherly Love which was Joey Lawrence was Yeah, I, I, just had a, a, I just had Liz Vassy on my show a few weeks ago. I saw because I was looking to see who you had on your show I was like, oh God, that's so funny. Yeah, so so we did that show. It was a really cute show. We we were it was on the first season. It was on NBC, and then um, they canceled it, and the WB picked it up. And it was so much fun. I worked with these guys. Um, well, they were the Funny Boys. Do you remember right. the Funny yeah, Boys? Yeah, Jonathan, Jonathan Schmock's been on my show before. Tim, 
Oh, great. So Jonathan and Jimmy. And Jonathan and Jimmy, ironically, were the first comedians that I met online at the improv. Oh, which wow. Was amazing. So they gave me my first writing job. Now, what was, and, it like, um, what was it like for you to go into the writer's room? Because so many times comics have a problem with that because, you know, especially because you're on the road and, and people, you know, who have never been on the road and I was on the road, you know, when, when you're on the road, your life is just different. You know, you, you can't get to sleep because you get home from a show and you're, you feel awake and then, you know, you have so much free time. But then I've heard a lot of times, like Rich Scheidner said, when he went into the writer's room, it drove him crazy because he was, you know, you're sitting there it's it's regimented, and a lot of comics who have been on the road aren't used to regiment and scheduling. What was your experience all of a sudden getting off? I mean, I know you were tired of the road and it was getting to you, but what was your experience getting in the room and then really on stage all your ideas would get out there? In a writer's room, they're sure you pitch stuff and, and they don't listen or they just don't get picked. What was your, how did you, uh, you know, trans, transmit to that, trans, whatever the word is? I can't think of the word. Transcend? Trans, yeah, uh, tr make a transition. There you go. Make a transition. Well, I tell you, we were very, it was a very unique situation on Brotherly Love because Jimmy and Jonathan were the greatest showrunners in the world. Um, it, it, just the atmosphere in that room was so much fun. Eddie Gradetsky was one of the writers. Um, Mike Rowe ended up joining the writing staff, and he was the funniest. And it was just, there was really no feeling of jockeying for position or people not listening to you. We were, it was just pure fun and we never stayed late. And when we, um, when we, uh, taped the show, a lot of shows, cause I found out later on when I'd been on another show, um, they stay on the floor of the stage. But with our show, we were up in a booth above the stage and so it was our private little room, and we and no agents or managers or anybody but the writers were allowed in that room. And, you know, we're like laughing and lying on couches, and, you know, it was, a, it was just a party, basically, um, that entire season. And I remember Jimmy and, and Jonathan saying to my, my girlfriend, Nicole, who was my writing partner, they said, don't get used to this because this is not the way it is most writing rooms. This is a just a, a we just have a different situation here because we can, and they were very very respectful, and um, and I was so you know when when the show didn't get picked up I was like oh god you know I mean we're never gonna have this again, but I I we my girlfriend and I ended up getting a job on Sex in the City the first season. The first and season of Sex in the City. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, what was that like? Um, I, and did you ever, did you know that that show was just going to blow up like bigger than ever? We didn't, we didn't. And, you know, it was funny. I, um, I was, you know, good friends with Michael Patrick King. We started at the same time and Michael was actually part of the team. And then he ended up doing stand up by himself. And Michael lived around the corner for me on the Upper West Side in a like basement apartment and he was like financially like struggling. I had to co-sign his first credit card. He's like a billionaire now. Um, anyway, so Michael and Darren Starr were running the show and um, we were with, my, oh, my, my girlfriend and I, we had signed with um, CAA and I had asked them to, uh, to contact um, you know, Michael and Darren and or or HBO and get us a meeting and they said they're not um, hiring anybody and we said they're not hiring it how do they not what do you mean they're not hiring they're going to do the show by themselves they're not hiring any writers and they said they're, they're just not so I had a friend Carolyn Strauss who was a big wig at, at HBO so I called her up myself and I said Carolyn you have to get us uh, a meeting with Michael and Darren. I said, and and, my, and and Carolyn was friends with Michael, knew I was friends with Michael. I said, you have to get us a meeting. My girlfriend and I, another part of the story, the two of us had created a show um, while we were doing Brotherly Love, like in between Brotherly Love, like or maybe like at the end of Brotherly Love, we created a show about two women living in Manhattan who were roommates, 
who were in their like mid thirties and just kind of not really there with their careers and just kind of, you know, struggling with, with their identity and blah, 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 blah. So we, we went to a taping of, of a show and we were just talking to some other uh, woman writer and they told us that HBO was doing this show called Sex in the City. And we were like, oh my God, it sounds so much like our show. Um, we have to get a meeting. So we knew that we were the perfect people to work on the show. She's from New York as well. She grew up in Manhattan. So I said to Carolyn, you have to get us a meeting. And she said, Sue, I'd love to, but, um, you know, they're not seeing anybody. So I said, Karen, just call up Michael and get us a meeting. So she got us a meeting. And, you know, we go in. We have a great, great meeting. And um, it's a family show. <laughs> no, you can curse. Oh, you can curse whatever you want. Yeah, it's okay. fine. Okay, well, anyway. So we go into the meeting, and we have a great, great time. And we had a couple of spec scripts of one that were really good. And we wrote a Larry Sanders, and that was the one that got like a lot of attention. So um, as we're leaving, Michael says to us, what do you think about oral sex? Uh, not oral sex, anal sex. And I just turned to him, and I said, only a coy loser involved. And he and Darren just cracked up laughing. And I really do think that that was one of the reasons why we got the job. We ended up getting the job after everybody told us they weren't hiring. And, um, and we, it, it was great because there really wasn't a writer's room. It was, it was just Darren and I, Nicole and my, and, uh, and Michael and, and Nicole. And, um, they had an outside writer who came in, uh, two outside writers that came in and, and wrote a couple of scripts. And Candace Bushnell, who wrote the book, she would come in, you know, from time to time from New York. But it was really the four of us. And um, it was unbelievably great. You know, at, in by 10, out by 5, 6 o'clock. No crazy writer's room hours. Um, the content we were writing, you know, we... We wrote on Brotherly Love, which was so, you know, it was like a G show. And now it was like, like, what's another word for fuck? And it's like, oh, we don't have to come up with another word right. for fuck. We just say fuck, <laughs> you know. Um, it, was, it was so amazing. But we really didn't know, you know, what was going to happen with it. And um, when the show, when it ended, my partner just, she wanted to write on her own. So we split up. And I was, you know, I was disappointed, but, you know, what are you going to do? And, uh, but I ended up getting a, a radio gig in New York with uh, this guy, Steve Mason, who does sports out here. Right. And um, I, we had a morning radio show on WNEW for like a year and a half. And that was amazing. So you got out of writing and then, you know, you, so, but, so when you guys, when you, when you and your writing partner broke up, did that end, did that, that end your days at Sex and the City? Like, did they, did they didn't want to keep just you or what happened? Yeah, well, well, um, it was before, no, I guess they were starting to, um, they were starting to read other people. Yeah, they, they didn't, they didn't want us coming back, um, alone. They wanted, they either wanted us as a team or, you know, and then I and I, I think they saw that this was going to be like a, a huge, huge show. So they hired like Meryl Marco. They started to hire like you know more high end writers. And you know, Meryl and I were kind of friendly. I didn't know her that well at the time. She's become a very good friend of mine. But at the time, you know, she was more of an acquaintance. Um, so anyway, so they started to hire kind of more big ticket writers. And, uh, and I, you know, I went to New York, had a great time. I, you know, I, I, I still, I, I, and I still did stand up throughout this whole time. I just didn't do it as much. You know, I got hired to do some really, really cool jobs. I got, when I was doing Sex in the City, I got hired to host this women in film and television event in Manhattan. And I, you know, I flew my writing partner out and, and Darren got wind that I was going to be doing it, and he had never seen me do stand-up, so he and Candace came to the show, and it was, you know, it's one of those was one of those events where you just love that someone who you admire so much as a writer, um, who was your boss, comes to see you, and in an event that was like, you know, like mirror, I was like honoring Mirror and and um, Judy, um, 
uh, what's her name from MTV? I'm Judy blanking Brown. on her last. Judy Brown. Who's it? Judy Brown. No, 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 no. She was. She was like. Um. She was an executive. Oh, um, right, Judy right. McGrath. Okay. She was like one of the big, big, big executives um, at MTV, and uh, Barbara Walters and Nora Ephron, like all these really, really cool women, um, were being honored, and and I was the, the the host, and it was just phenomenal. And, you know, and then, like, I went on at Caroline's, and, you know, so, 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 anyway, so during my, my radio days, I still did stand up as much as I physically could, because I, you know, my, my job was, like, you know, four till, till, uh, let me see, the radio show was, oh, five to nine, and then it became six to ten, so I, you know, my life was just crazy, you know, I got up at three in the morning, and, you know, came home, took a nap, and. I slept in shifts, um, and um, during the week, I very rarely went out, and on the weekend, I, I wanted to, you know, stay fresh with stand-up, so if I didn't have, like, a week at Caroline's, um, I would, you know, just do some, do, Saturday night was the only night that I would go out and do, and do sets, and the rest of the time, you know, I was kind of a hermit, you know? No. You know, I... Now, you, you did the radio, and then, then now I know, then, how did you transition into reality tv which you've been nominated for a few emmys how did that whole situation happen i mean it's because i know you wrote for ellen and different stuff but how mm -hmm. did you, you translate you know how did you i know you worked for the osborne stuff like that how did that whole part of your career happen and now you became a producer i mean what what was that transition stage well i came back after i, I came back um after the show the radio show ended i came back and um was trying actually trying to get a radio gig and, um, you know, it was just a really, really hard thing to do. They were doing this thing called Comedy World. Um, I think it was in, like, not Mar Vista, but around that area. There was a bunch of trailers, and comics got two-hour shows. Kenny got a show with, with Lou, and um, Alan Havey had a show. and So I used to fill in. I, I used to call myself the Joy Philbin of, of the trailers because <laughs> I would fill in every now and then for people. But they never gave me my own show. And um, and then I ended up getting a job. Carol Liefer called me up. She was offered this um, show, writing on a show called um, Cheating Spouses Caught on Tape. <laughs> and um, a good friend of hers was the head writer. And she turned it down, but she recommended me. And that began my reality TV career. No, so I... What's that like to all of a sudden go from doing stand-up to doing reality? I mean, it's it's a whole different kind of writing style, I'm sure, and it shows your chops as a writer because you can, you know, you've went from a kid's show to Sex and the City, and then, you know, you you you've changed, you you've, you've written a lot of different genres. What how how do you hone your writing chops for reality? Because being a person who is used to writing jokes, who's used to writing comedy, it's got to be a little different. Yeah, it was, but the the thing about the show, it was. It was it was so hard. I mean, just the subject matter was so disturbing. It was just all these people cheating on everybody. But the guy who was the head writer was very, very funny. And the guy who uh, was the head of the production company was very lax in allowing us to have a lot of fun with the commentary. Like, I'll give you an example. There was um, a guy, they were in a uh, real estate office, and I guess the guy that owned the real estate office wanted to put hidden cameras because he thought people who worked for him were stealing. So the footage that, you know, that I had to write for, this guy, you, like they panned the room and you see all of these computers like against the wall, like in the entire office. And then there's a like a folding chair and there's a guy sitting in the folding chair and this woman is going down on him, right? So... Um, I wrote, the guy in the chair um, does not work at the real estate office, but the woman um, the woman is raking in all the commission or something okay. like that. <laughs> so they just, they just let us have fun with, with the copy. So it ended up being, um, it, it really wasn't, I mean, it was a departure from writing jokes, but it was just a different way of writing jokes. And it was really, really fun. And again, I worked with this guy, um, his name is Dave Boone. You've probably seen his name on a million shows. He's won 
Emmys, and I, I don't know if he won the Academy Award, but he won Emmys. He's written on every award. He writes on the Academy Award. He writes on everything. And he's, he's just a very, he used to write for, um, for Rich Jenny. He was Rich Jenny's okay. writer for, for many, many years. Anyway, so it was just fun. So I, I did that and I stayed at the company for probably three years and, um, and wrote a lot of stuff for them. And then I got a job on Ellen. It wasn't a talk show. It was her second sitcom. Okay. That, um, Cloris Leachman was on and Jim Gaffigan was on and, um, it ended up not being a very, very pleasant experience. So I uh, ended up leaving the show. Uh, friends of mine um, were working on the Osbournes, and um, this was the first season. They were they, they were one produced. They needed one more segment producer producer to fill the staff, and um, they hired me. And um, I had no idea what it was going to be. I knew who Ozzy was, but I didn't really knew nothing about his family or, or you know, I just, I, all I knew was that I was miserable where I was and I would, you know, I said, I will take, I will, I will take half of what I made because I was making, you know, WG, WGA, you know, you know, I was a was like story editor money and it was, you know, it was great money. But I said, I, I can't go to work every day. I'm, like, nauseous every time I go to work. So um, I took, like, half, I, I got, like, half a salary. And it was the greatest move I ever made because the show was the most fun I've ever had in my life, in my career. What made it and, so fun? Well, you know, we were doing something really, really special. And we knew it when we were doing it. And... When I got into, I mean, that, I mean, even though the other show that I did was, I guess you consider reality TV, this was, it was a reality sitcom, and no one had ever done anything like this before, and this was before the days of production companies being the middleman, and you would get, like, no, you like, now you get, like, like, 15 pages of notes from a production company, you get, you know... 20 pages of notes from the network. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous. Back then, it was just MTV and us. We were all independent contractors, except for the, one of the showrunners who was an MTV, he was like the MTV guy. But he was like a young, hip guy. And we, our offices were, the first year our offices were kind of shitty, but the second year, we moved into this IMAX building in Santa Monica, and we had the top floor. And it was beautiful. I mean, you know, giant ceilings and, and uh, you know, state-of-the-art offices. And we were, we were like the inmates that ran the asylum. We weren't, there were no MTV executives that they were in a completely different building. And they had never done anything like this before. So they really let us dictate what the show was going to be. And we had, you know, great, an unbelievable music supervisor who got, you know, got great music, had musicians um, write, write great music, you know, like stuff that we couldn't, you know, that we didn't have money for. Um, it was just, and, and then just watching the footage, I mean, it was just crazy how funny these people were. And... And because we didn't do the typical interviews and on-the-fly crap that they do now and, you know, having to explain everything that's going on after you've seen everything already, they have to tell you everything. Um, we just, it was the purest of reality because nobody told Ozzy or anybody in that family or anybody or any of their friends, nobody told them what to do, what to say. We never went back and reshot stuff. It was pure reality. And, and it was done kind of backwards to, way, to, to how it's done now. Back then, you just shot. You shot as much footage as you can possibly shoot, and then you were a slave to the footage. So I watched everything and took very extensive notes, you know, from like reaction shots and, you know, somebody, you know, just crazy little things that you can make into, you had to make something sometimes out of nothing because there was no going back. 
and um, it was just very, very creative. And and I think a lot of it was just the the creative license that they gave us um, was just you'll you'll never have that again in television. It, it just will never happen. And now you got nominated for an Emmy for that. Yeah, well, the, well, the first season I worked on it, they won an Emmy, and I my title wasn't high enough, so that was disappointing. But you know, I got a great certificate saying you know contributions and all that. And then we were nominated the following year, and uh, they didn't win. Now, now, um, but you you did the and then now you also were nominated for Emmys for Top Chef. How did you end up? I mean, your writing career is really, you've, you've covered a lot of area. I mean, you've, you've gone from, you know, kids show to, to a sex show to the Osbournes to culinary. I mean, how did you end up with, I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's great. How did you end up with ending up on the, the Top Chef series? Um, I just, uh, my agent set up a general meeting uh, with one of the executives up there and, um, I had a, uh, actually a friend of mine who I got a job on the Osbournes as a producer. He uh, had been working for this particular production company for, you know, maybe three years or, or longer. And he had worked on um, Project Runway when it was at this company. And then he was working on um, Top Chef Masters. He was heading, he was show running that show. So I went in for this general meeting and, you know, I thought the meeting was okay, I actually left there feeling like uh, I'm probably not going to get a job with them. And um, I got a call that, that I was getting hired, and it turned out that I was going to be working with my friend. So he, I'm sure, was influential. They probably said, oh, we met with this woman, Sue Kalinsky. He's like, oh, Sue Kalinsky. So I got a job there, and I worked, did a couple of Top Chef Masters, maybe three seasons of Top Chef Masters, and I did three seasons of um, Top Chef. And um, yeah, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Um, you know, had to, you know, work with great people, um, and, you know, uh, you just kind of go from place to place, although now it's become a little weird how, um, how specific your credits have to be to get a job, like, like, you know, I'll find, like, like, like a friend of mine was working on a TLC show, and she said, have you ever... Do you have TLC credits? And I'm like, I got to work for TLC probably like 20 years ago. And either, you know, I'm sure everyone's gone or some people are dead. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, um, because their notes are very specific to their network, like Bravo. Their notes, they like having Bravo people because you have to navigate their notes. And their notes are insane. Okay. They're the they're the they're the the network that will give you twenty pages of notes on a show that's been on the air nine years. Right. It's just insane. Anyway, so it's just you know the business has has changed so much, like everything. But um, you know, and it gets harder to you know to get work. You get older, and you know they want younger people or younger people, you know, to do what you you do, but you command more of a salary. And, you know, a lot of times it's like, I don't really give a shit. I'll take less money. Just give me a job. Right. I don't care. Now, you know? now, now, have you been doing stand-up at all? Because I know that Lou DiMaggio got back into it. I know I was actually supposed to do a show at the end of this month before I decided to move out. Wendy Lieben had booked me a few months ago for a show. And I know Mark Brazil's doing the show. And Mark hasn't done stand-up forever. A lot of people are getting back to do stand-up. I started doing stand-up again. I was just as I said, I was hosted for my friend who was taping a special in Philly. Have you been getting back on stage at all, or is it something that you will do? Well, I uh, did Wendy Liebman's show in December. Okay. And I had not done stand-up in 10 years. And I was completely petrified. <laughs> and I'll tell you how it happened. She, You know, I, I went to a couple of her shows and really enjoyed that room. It's really great. And I figured if I'm ever going to get back to doing it or, or just go on stage anywhere, this would be the room because it's... It's very, um, very supportive. The audience is a little bit older. Um, they get everything. And they're not pushovers. I mean, they don't laugh at things that aren't funny, but they're just a really, really great, it's just a great room. So Wendy um, had asked me a couple of times, you know, you know, I'd really love for you to do it. And I said, eh, you know, I, I, I don't do stand-up anymore. And I, and I really, you know, 
sometimes I'll kind of get like a little bit of an itch. Um, I still will jot something down on a piece of paper thinking, God, if I was doing stand-up, I would, this is what I'd be talking about. So um, she had asked me a couple of times, and I, you know, I said, nah, thank you. You know, I'm very flattered, but I, I, I just don't want to do it. So um, I get an email from her last July, and she says, um, I, I really want you to, uh, to come and do the room. Um, here are two dates, pick one. You're going back on stage. <laughs> I said, okay. So I picked the later one. It was December 28th, I believe. So I go down to Florida. Um, most Christmases, I go down to Florida. My uh, husband's family lives down there. So it's, I guess we're leaving on Christmas Day. And we get to Chicago, and we're stuck. We can't get out of Chicago. Um, and and I, every, every day from the minute I knew that I was going to do stand-up in December from July, I thought about it every day. And I was like, and every day I was going to cancel. Right. I'm like, oh, God, you know, it's like I have to write new stuff. I can't talk about what I used to talk about. It's not relevant anymore. Yeah, there are a couple of things here and there that were kind of evergreen, but just for myself, I didn't want to do too much of, of my old act. So, um, and I and I didn't write, I was writing a couple of things here and there, but I was totally cramming for exams. So, we find out that we can get to St. Louis from uh, Chicago, but we can't, we can't get to L.A. that night. So, we fly to St. Louis, we have to stay overnight, and right before we're going we're going to sleep we're watching some local show and this guy is interviewing Judd Apatow and i still didn't know whether i wasn't going to cancel i was kind of still on the fence so i'm watching the show and judd starts talking about you know how he got back into doing stand up and the guy asked him what he missed about it most and Judd starts to rattle off the camaraderie, you know, writing little things on pieces of paper and finding them places. And, and it was just everything that I miss about doing stand-up. And I don't know if I didn't see that, whether I wouldn't have canceled, but that made me not want to cancel. See that? And you got and back I, on stage. And I got back on stage, and it was really, really fun. I mean, you know, I had to get, you know, I, you know, my I had, you know, sea legs, you know, a little bit, but um, I did a lot of new stuff, and um, and it was really fun. And I, I mean, the minute I got on stage and said the, my the first thing, um, I felt good. Right. I got a response, and um, and it was great. And then I thought, you know, and then I kind of started writing. You know, I was like, oh, okay. Well, this is for like the next time I go on stage. But I haven't been on stage since. Well, well, you know what? That's uh, this hour flew. I want to, I, I want to thank you for coming on. That's a great way to end this interview because we all get back on stage, and you will get back on stage. Now, you tweet. What's your Twitter handle? Uh, at at s Kalinsk. And you tweet a lot, so people follow her. And uh, check out her IMDb. I always see go to the IMDb. And you can probably find old uh, clips of you on YouTube, I bet, doing your stand-up. Yeah, there's probably a few things floating around there. So people... And, um, and, and, and mesmerized, mes, it's mesmerized online. That's where I, I'm featured as a writer. And, and I also have a, a blog where I write about sports. Mostly it's been about the Mets, but I write about everything. And what's that and address? It's suesgotgame.com. Okay, so people, check her out. Check out Sue Kalinsky. Also, check me out on Twitter. It's at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. I tweet a lot. You can send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. Go to my website. I have over 600 sites, uh, 600 episodes up. I'm back. I, you know, I traveled for, had to get things ready for two weeks. I'm back, so you'll be getting new shows all the time. Um, also, my other website, stopthesalt.com. When I had that health problem, I wrote the Low Sodium Cookbook. 120 recipes, easy to make. No pictures to intimidate you. Easy recipes for one. Eat healthy. It's the summertime. You want to look good. And it tastes good. So go to StopTheSalt.com. You can get it at Amazon. But if you get it at StopTheSalt.com, I'll sign it and I make more money. So please, people, look up Sue Kalinsky. Follow her blog. Check out her Mets 
uh, things. Even though I'm not a Mets fan, she's funny, so I'm sure the articles are good. So please, keep listening. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. I will talk to you guys next week. All right. Thank you, Sue.